All right. Well, one of my uh, favorite things is how story has, uh, there's power in story and how we all have a story. And uh, it's our, our story is part of God's much bigger story. And so I really um, love gathering women, one thing, just to share stories and to hear stories. And so uh, I uh, thought, what a great opportunity to share a story with you. Uh, of This is Tammy Morton. And so uh, I asked her if she would come and just share her story. Not so much because I think it's, you know, um, there's something that God always, I think, um, is fun just about people's stories that... I love to see the different nuances and how they reflect Jesus and how they reflect his redemption. So I wasn't looking for like the most dramatic story. It might be, but, um, you know, that's, it's, it's more about just who she is and what I've seen God do in her. Uh, and that's why I really wanted you to share. So this is Tammy Morton. She's a leader here at our church and she's going to share her story for a few minutes. Great, thank I'm just going to stand over here. Okay. Be close. Well, let's see. Um, when I think about my story, it's a story that is in process, and it's really being rewritten. And to get the full story, I guess you kind of have to start from the beginning. And for the first 30 years of my life, I didn't know Jesus at all. I wasn't raised in the church, nowhere near it. Um, my family, uh, my mom and dad, it was me and my brother and my mom and dad, and they were both alcoholics, and so it was a really rough home environment, and at about 11 or 12, they uh, decided to get a divorce, so my brother and I went with my dad, and we traveled all over the place because he was in construction in drywall, and he was in the throes of addiction, and really wasn't capable of handling um, kids. So we kind of were left uh, to fend for ourselves, um, mostly emotionally and certainly spiritually. And so a bad story kind of got a lot darker and a lot worse. And so I kind of, growing out without a mom and no family structure, you know, it was easy to believe the lies of the enemy and who I was. And I was lost for a really long time, and I um, knew a lot about suffering. I was molested, actually, by a grandparent and fell into drugs and alcohol to numb the pain of that and just to try and feel okay. And then, fast forward a little bit, uh, I was working in the corporate world, and little did I know, but there was a VLI student in the midst. You guys know what that is? Vineyard Leadership Institute. And she kind of started talking to me and said, hey, uh, we're going to have this alpha course, and you can kind of explore Christianity, and do you want to come? And they have food. So I was like, yeah, I'll be there. And, and this was in Denver at the Smoky Hill Vineyard. Yay, Smoky Hill. And uh, through the process of really figuring out and learning about Jesus and all of these people and asking questions in a really safe way um, on the retreat at the Alpha, Alpha Course in Colorado Springs, I gave my life to Jesus. I was 31 years old. And yes, yes, thank you. 
And so my healing process, as you can imagine, I had abandonment issues a mile long and super insecure and very fearful um, of anything that I didn't understand. And so um, my husband and I were married, and I was a Christian for about nine months, and then I walked through the doors of the Duluth Vineyard, which was at the other location. And that's really where I found you guys, and you taught me how to love, how to be loved, and, and to pray, and to receive from the Holy Spirit. And when I think about my story of healing, um, one of my favorite quotes actually just sums it up, the process for me personally, beautifully. And it goes like this. The day came when the risk to remain in the bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And I really felt that. It was, it was painful to be hurt and wounded and stuck. And so through the process of in community, um, learning how to re really receive and let the Holy Spirit come and understanding who Jesus is and letting him pour into me over and over and over again, I began to change. And I began to have real joy. And... Um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. And when Aunt Lynn asked me to share, I was reading through my journals, and I just look at where he's brought me from, right? Because I know where he found me. And it, it is a miracle. Jesus saves. And my life is being rewritten. And I can tell you, it's amazing to let him come close and really speak into our lives. And uh, a really practical application for you guys uh, on what this looks like for me in my life and receiving is a few months ago, I was sitting in my sunroom and just kind of praying and reading the Bible and journaling. And it was really peaceful. And out of nowhere comes this word from the Lord that said, you were drinking a cup of lies from Satan. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> and after I argued it and denied it and processed it with a little bit of, you know, stomping and disagreeing, I said, yes, yes, Lord, I am. And I, in the process of that and just agreeing that, yep, I've been drinking a cup of lies from Satan. And my cup consisted of fear perfectionism, oh, let's see, what else, doubt, uh, shame, shame's a really big one for me, and still is, but he's bringing me out of it, and so I was like, yep, okay, God, this is yours, I, I give this to you, and right on the heels of that, Jesus gave me the image of his cup, his cup full of his blood, and I just knew that the, the, the sacrifice that he paid covered anything that I did, anything that I would do before. And I just sat there and received and let them pour in over and over and over again. And so that's what it looks like to receive, is to believe him. And I can tell you that if God has healed me of anything, the overarching truth of my life right now is my unbelief. My unbelief in the things that he's spoken over my life, the things that you guys have prayed from his heart over me. And I didn't believe it, but here's where it gets really, really good. I'm starting to believe it. Like it's really happening. 
It's amazing. And so I just want to encourage you guys, um, wherever you are, that Jesus always has more. And I love what you said about it being an adventure. And I remember before as a Christian, like, Christianity, that's so boring. Why would you do that? And I'm like, it's not boring. It's a ride. It's fun and it's exciting and it brings meaning. And so, um, yeah, I just encourage you guys to to let Jesus have his way. And here's the thing. God made each of you specifically planned and purposed. And as you let him coax you and woo you and love you out of your stuck places, you're going to find that you start to line up your life with his will. And all of a sudden, you come alive. And, And when you're walking in the person that he's created you to be, This joy comes, and it's the person that he thought of right before he breathed the breath of life into you. That is the sweetest worship Jesus can receive. So I just encourage you on your journeys to just keep asking him, God, how did you make me? What did you make me for? And how can you sometimes drag us kicking and screaming and crying into your presence? Because that's where the love and the life and the sweetness of Jesus is. So... Thanks, guys. So I wanted to, I want you to just real briefly say what you're doing now. Like, you know, as you've kind of come to life from the things of the Spirit and you hear God's heart for you, like, what has He led you into? What's He releasing you to do as a woman in ministry? And what are some of the things you're excited about at the moment? Okay, briefly. (laughs) <laughs> I'll stay right here and okay, I'll just okay. pull you off when it's too long. Um, so over the last couple of years, Jesus has wrecked and ruined me for a wider expression of worship. And I'm a writer and an artist and I'm madly passionate and wild and can talk your ear off for a really long time about how God is raising up artists and creatives to really get in line with hearing him and then speaking uh, prophetically and creating art that's going to really transform and, and create culture. We're not supposed to respond to culture. We are, we, are cre- we are culture creatives, and we create culture. And so I'm really I'm so excited to see what he's doing here locally and then nationally and internationally. God is breathing on the arts. He's breathing on a wider expression of worship because that's who God is so so she leads a a writer's group here and the some of the arts and creativity things that we do yeah and you're a fantastic uh gospel of wholeness one-on-one peer counselor that people love to meet with and is that and what else small group leader you're a small group leader yeah and you're just running in the kingdom and yes. playing and having fun, aren't you? Oh, man. It is such a great, wild ride. And the thing is, when you're lining up with his will, you don't get tired. You're just like, oh, what's your dream for my life? What are we going to do next, God? And he just keeps pouring out. And you, you just really you have to keep in step with the Spirit. Yeah. You're doing what you're for. Yeah. I love you. I Thank love you. you. Thanks for sharing. You can uh, give her a big hand. All right, Debbie, come on up. Um, We have been so, so blessed to just hear uh, from Debbie. So she's going to start uh, a 
series of three talks here tonight and two tomorrow uh, on Radical Jesus. And there are, you can take notes if you like in your little book. Um, and uh, Debbie, thanks for coming to Duluth. Duluth. Thank you. That, that was such a great story. I, oh, I'm just a sucker for stories. In fact, it's like we probably don't even need a talk tonight, do we? We just could just minister from that. And, um, you know, one of the keys, a few of you have sort of been asking, how did I, you know, how do I kind of get stuck? Do I find that I revisit some of the old habits and all that sort of thing? And, you know, one of the great keys is what you focus on grows. And if you continue on and on focusing on the big, terrible things that have gone on in your life or, you know, the, the, the old habits and the addictions and you, you just keep, you know, feeding them with attention. Uh, one of the best antidotes is being busy in the kingdom. And it's just so thrilling. It's so exciting. Uh, the opportunities that are out there to minister that actually then those things that are, you know, they're taunting and tempting just begin to diminish because it is just so exciting to know who you are, in a sense, as a missionary in this world. Anyway, so now I'm going to tell a story, which has nothing to do with my talk, but I've asked the guys not to listen, and it's going to, be, it's going to not be on the, on the recording. Closest to the core of the plant. And in that sense, Jesus was one with the Father. He was radically close to the Father, the heartbeat of the Father, the will of the Father. Everything he came to do, he did to reflect, to demonstrate, to be to us how the Father wants to be amongst us. And uh, the word radical also means extreme. It's got like an edgy, shocking kind of sense about it. And uh, what I love about Jesus is that he is outrageous in the way that he will um, love people and reach people who others um, don't want anything to do with. And so I want to look at the radical Jesus in this encounter with Zacchaeus, the very little man uh, who was the tax collector. Now, many of us will be familiar with this story. If we went through some kind of Sunday school, we would have heard it. We would be familiar with it. But the danger is when you hear stories again and again is that you miss some of the detail and the impact uh, that it really can have on our adult lives because we think we know it all. And so I'm going to remind us. Now, you may want to turn to your devices, your phones, or your Bible, if you're old-fashioned like me, and uh, look up Luke chapter 19, which is where this story is. So it's... Just find it here. And we will just read from verse 1. So... Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, and all the people saw it, and they began to mutter, he's gone to be with a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up, and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, 
And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. It is one of my favorite stories. Let me just get to... It's a very vivid and real story, and there are so many aspects that we can identify with. Now, Luke is the only gospel um, writer to tell this uh, very real story about Zacchaeus, and the importance for Luke in recounting this story is the fact that it so perfectly demonstrates why Jesus came. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to be attracted to success. So, um, you know, I find it quite irresistible when sitting in a hairdresser's or having my nails done or something like that to sort of slip in that I know Marcus Mumford, you know, <laughs> that I, you know, that I'm going to Marcus and Carrie's wedding, you know, when it happened in the summer. And, you know, somebody that, you know, it's like we kind of quite enjoy that we might be associated with somebody who's becoming famous or who's well known by others. Um, there's something that makes us feel good about ourselves when we uh, associate ourselves with somebody who's really good at something or, um, you know, respected. And yet Jesus was radical in that he hung out with the rejects, with the lost, with the unlovable people, people who other people hated, uh, people who really couldn't give him anything because he came to restore people to relationship with their heavenly father. And what we see in this story is incredible, radical, unconditional love and how the power of God's love and acceptance brings new life and freedom. Jesus in this story is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. He knows his mission. He is here to fulfill the rescue plan that was put in place from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell. There was a plan. Uh, it may have been in, in God's mind and heart long before that because he knows all things. And the plan was that he would send his own son who would die for our sake so that we could be reconciled. And so he is on his way to Jerusalem very intentionally to die for us. And yet at the same time, when we see Jesus with the intention to rescue us, he is also constantly looking for opportunities to reach out to people who need to know his love. He's in passionate pursuit of people who are lost. Now, the loss sounds quite derogatory to those who are presently lost. When you talk about, when you say to somebody, you're lost and, you know, God's come for you as the lost, they don't quite get it. From, from, from their point of view, they may not feel like they're lost. But if you've ever lost something really, really important, really valuable, you know how um, scary and terrifying and upsetting it is. We were um, on the beach one wonderful summer when my children were small, a few, there are a few summers in England that, um, that you can kind of rely on the fact that it's not going to rain. And it was just a beautiful sunny day. And we were on the beach and I was lying there soaking up the sun rays. And it was about 12 minutes had gone by. And all of a sudden I sat up with a strange feeling. I looked down the beach and there was John and Zach, my eldest, playing in the water. And all of a sudden I realized that I hadn't seen Jordan, our three-year-old, for 12 minutes and I'm sitting up and I'm looking around and I can't see him. And all of a sudden I'm like, <gasps> you know, like this sort of panic. And I begin to, to rush around. John sees me kind of 
uh, uh, and he's and I'm starting to call out Jordan, 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 Jordan. You know, like, I'm just frantic. People think I'm nuts. I'm running, interrupting conversations. I don't care what I look like. I'm I'm frantic. John's running around frantically looking for him. We're look. We're just everything. I don't even know if I had time to think about what could have happened to him. But everything just everything is trauma in that moment. And then we finally see him just quite a way off, but he's playing with a little boy. And he has no idea he's lost. And I'm, I run up, I scoop him up, and I'm just like holding him and holding him. And I'm so relieved to have found him. That's how God feels about people who are lost, who don't know him. He's obsessed. And when you're frantic and obsessed, you go to extreme lengths. Many years ago, um, I was telling folks last night that I hung out with um, prostitutes um, it was an outreach centre. It wasn't a Christian place, but I wanted to understand what was going on in our city, what were some of the needs before we launched into some of the ministries that we now um, uh, participate in and, and do as a church. And um, while I was there, uh, one of the girls there who, who worked there and helped other, some of the other prostitutes uh, was Wendy. And Wendy had been a prostitute herself, but had come out of that lifestyle and she was now, you know, helping some of the girls just uh, present to them opportunities and choices, helping them learn to read, maybe get a bit of education, anything that would open the door to other options so that they could come out of uh, the life of prostitution. But Wendy had this um, habit of forming relationships with very abusive men. And presently, uh, while I was there, she was in a relationship with a guy, uh, her, a guy who was living off her, who lived in her house and... Um, he would beat her up regularly, and she would come in with, you know, battered black and blue, teeth missing, and um, this guy had, had put a gun to her head. And um, I would offer to pray for Wendy, um, you know, Wendy, please let me pray with you. And she'd go, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want that sort of thing. And she just was very uncomfortable with the idea of, of anybody praying for her or praying over anything. And... Um, Anyway, this, this weekend was drawing uh, close, and she, on the Friday afternoon, began to shake with fear because the weekends was when it got really bad. And he was utterly controlling, and she would be, like, imprisoned over the weekend, and he had to know everything she was going to do every minute of the day. And he would, like, do horrible things to her kittens and abuse them in front of her, and just, just he was just evil. And she's, like, beginning to quake uh, as the clock is drawing to five o'clock. And I go, Wendy, please let me pray with you. Please let me pray with you. And so she finally goes, okay. And we sit down, and I just go, I say, God, I cry out to you for an intervention. I cry out. You say in your scriptures that you are there on behalf of the weak, that you are there, you know, and that you will rescue those who are weak and downtrodden. And um, anyway... Wendy goes home, and, and um, the following, after the weekend, she calls me, and she tells me what happened. Basically, she turns up, it's dark, she turns up, and there outside her home is the one man in her life who had ever been kind and gentle with her, but she hadn't seen him for years, and he's there, and she says, what are you doing here? And he says, I don't know, but I felt I should come. He's not a believer. I felt I should be here, and she bursts into tears, and she says, in my house is my boyfriend, my partner. And she tells him all that's been happening to her. And she shows him her, her missing teeth and the black loop. And he is so angry. He marches into her house. He drags the guy out. And he throws him out the house. And he says, don't you dare come back here. 
And he sits with her in her home. But of course, they're kind of worried because is he going to come back? What's going to happen? Well, it turns out that this violent boyfriend goes off in his car driving. What Wendy didn't know is that he has several criminal offences and he's actually been on the run from the police. And he's arrested for speeding and uh, uh, driving under the influence of alcohol and sitting on his seat is a gun, which in England is highly illegal. And so he's arrested there and then. And usually you might be arrested, held for a night, but then, you know, sent home before you go to court. But because he was on the run, he was arrested and put in jail immediately. And Wendy had time to move house to somewhere safe. You see, God is concerned for those who are far away, for those who are far off, for those who are in desperate need, and he will go to extreme lengths to rescue them. And Wendy knew that day that God was pursuing her, that God loves her. It's such a comfort to those of us who maybe our children have um, lost uh, their way. You know, maybe we know uh, dear ones who have been in the church and have gone astray like prodigals. And it's such a comfort to know that God is searching for them, is looking out for them. One girl who recently got baptized in our church, she had, uh, was facing uh, imprisonment. Um, it wasn't a, a huge deal that she, she'd done something, and I can't remember exactly the details, but she was going to do something like five months in prison, but it meant that her children would be taken from her. And she was given the choice of doing community service and coming to join in our Arches Project, which is a benevolence ministry where we feed the poor and clothe and do all sorts of things within the Arches. And um, she came to serve, and she suddenly realized that this was a Christian community. And she realized that this was it, that this was Jesus was after her. And she remembered in her childhood that she'd been taken to church once and been given the opportunity to know Jesus. And she'd kind of dabbled in the faith, and then left. Then she got into drugs and all sorts of things. And then there was another occasion where she'd met somebody who knew Jesus and who, uh, you know, ministered to her. But she still didn't give her life to Jesus. And then finally, when she came to the arches, she's like, I surrendered. I knew that God had been pursuing me, pursuing me my whole life. And why on earth did I think life wouldn't be so abundant with him? Because it is. And she told her story at the baptism service. Jesus is passing through Jericho, he's on his way to die, and it doesn't seem that in this story at this point he has any intention of stopping or hanging out in Jericho. But as always, he is open to the Father's promptings because his heart beats with the Father's heart. It seems that Jesus is living life as if, as if the normal things of life are a distraction, uh, but doing the will of the Father is what he's always about. Sometimes the scriptures say that he went without food, that he didn't sleep, um, but he is always open to what the Father is saying. That is what he's about. And so in this story, he suddenly stops and he looks up. He doesn't pass Zacchaeus by because Jesus overlooks no one. Have you ever felt passed by? Have you ever had that experience? When I was sent to boarding school, age 13, um, it was all the way back to England, uh, 24 hours in an aeroplane, and I turn up, and for me, the English culture, my English was quite good, because I learned it from my parents, but I had no idea about grammar, I couldn't spell properly, I was fairly illiterate, uh, I prayed to Jesus in Spanish, 
Uh, so my first language was Spanish, and, um, and I had a lot of things to learn about the British culture. I had no idea about sarcasm. I thought everybody was lying to me. Um, you know, it was just a bizarre thing. And uh, I remember that we, at boarding school first week, it was PE, physical education. And we're all in the changing room, putting on our navy blue underpants and our little blue skirt and an, a blue air text. And as we're getting changed, the girls are talking about netball. And I'm thinking, what's netball? I've never heard of netball because in South America, physical education was all about gymnastics and maybe some athletics, but it was all about gymnastics, certainly where I went to school. And I was quite good at it because I was very flexible and all that. So I was used to being good at the physical education that we had in Chile. And then I'm hearing netball, netball. I'm thinking, what is it? What, what's netball? What's netball? And it becomes obvious to the girls that I don't know what netball is, so I'm not going to be any good at it. We get into the, onto the court, and our PE teacher says, right, Sarah, Caroline, choose your teams. And they start choosing. You've had, had you had this experience where they start going, you, you, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just going red, and I'm thinking, I'm sure I could pick this up. I'd probably be quite good at it. But no one's choosing me. No one's choosing me. No one's choosing me. Oh, my gosh. I'm so old. This is so embarrassing. And you know, when it got to the end, I was spare anyway. I, the teams weren't going to be even. So if only the PE teacher had said, Debbie, you sit this, this one out uh, and watch how we play and you'll learn the rules. I mean, that would have given me some dignity. But instead, there was this horrible feeling. Now, some of you will remember those experiences. But some of you have had far worse experiences. Times when you've been deliberately rejected and overlooked. Some of you have felt passed by when so many around you are getting married. You've been to so many weddings, uh, so many hen parties, and, uh, and you feel like you've been overlooked. Everybody's having babies, and you are struggling to conceive. You've finished university, and there's no jobs. You're facing redundancy while other people in the workplace are getting uh, promoted. Throughout history, we see how repeatedly people who are different are ostracized, rejected, passed by, even bullied. In our city, we have um, the big issue sellers. I don't know whether there's any equivalent in our cities over here in the US and your cities here, but it's a magazine that homeless people get to sell, and they just make a bit of money, and it, it gives them some dignity. And so if you can, you buy it. But you can't buy more than one. I mean, it's not actually an amazing read. Um, so you kind of, you know, pass a number of them by as you're walking around our city. And uh, some of them are in our church. And um, I was talking to one of, the, one of the guys once, and he said, you know, one of the hardest things is when people just pass by you and ignore you as if you don't exist because they don't want to buy the magazine. He said, we quite understand that you may have already bought it or you don't want to buy it, but smile or say something because we feel like, you know, it's dehumanizing. It's as if you don't care. You don't want to know us. You're embarrassed by us. And this brings me back to Zacchaeus because there are a few things in this encounter with Jesus that makes me think, what's the story behind the story? Okay, what's going on for Zacchaeus? Because he seems to have mapped out a pretty extreme radical life of his own. Disobedience, selfishness, greed, cheating his own people. Maybe as Zacchaeus is growing up, he has experienced being passed by because of his size, okay? We're told that he's a little man. Maybe as he's growing up, he found himself different to the others. Maybe he was rejected, ridiculed, bullied for his size, left behind again and again. As other people are running off ahead, he's trying to get his little feet to run as fast as them, and he can't do it. 
And then, you know, in his teenage years, the others are getting tall. They're starting to kind of uh, get noticed by the girls and little fluttering eyelids through the whatever, you know. And uh, the girls are just sort of looking at the boys and he, no one's looking at him because he's short. And, um, you know, he's living in reaction to a traumatic life, you know. And he's become a powerful man, chief tax collector. Tax collectors are despised and hated. Jewish religious practice would say you must have nothing to do with with tax collectors. They're outcasts, they're sinners, they're unclean. And Jews should completely reject them. They were considered traitors to their own people. They colluded with the Romans. And it was agreed that as long as the Romans had their set amount of taxes, the tax collectors could take as much as they wanted. And they had the force of Roman rule behind them. As chief tax collector... Zacchaeus would have had a number of tax collectors working for him, a whole workforce, making even more money on the side. And to hold that position, he would have had to be mean and hard-hearted. And all of Jericho would have known who Zacchaeus was. They would have watched him grow in wealth, uh, material success, earning his own home, moving to something a bit bigger, a mansion, perhaps then an estate with land, many, many servants, And they saw his lifestyle and they saw with bitterness in their hearts how he had taken from his own people. He'd become rich by abusing his very own people. The bullied one has become the bully. He was consumed with being central to his own story, with controlling his destiny. And to get to that place, he'd alienated himself from his own people and lost relationship with God. As a Jew, Zacchaeus forgot that he was part of God's people, a child of Abraham. Abraham was called to be blessed, to be a blessing. God wanted his people to be a people through whom he would show his love. And Zacchaeus had alienated himself completely from that identity. He was utterly lost. And yet the story tells us that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And he climbs a sycamore tree. Now, a sycamore tree has got big branches like that come from pretty much from the root. They go out like this. And then there's these just little fragile branches with leaves on the top. So you can't hide amongst the leaves. You, you climb into it and all is seen by everybody. You can't hide in a sycamore tree. What on earth has got into Zacchaeus that he would get up a tree like this? I'm picturing a kind of Danny DeVito, okay? Fat and chubby on all this incredible food and wealth, but he's suddenly lifting up his skirts and running along and climbing up this tree and scrambling and trying to see Jesus, and it's ridiculous. What has happened to him? What's got into him? Something so radical about Jesus has attracted him, and he has forgotten himself. He's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten his self-importance. He's forgotten his pride. He's forgotten the pain inside that would inhibit his freedom all the kind of persona of wealth and power, and suddenly, like a little child, he's become humble, and he's climbed this tree, exposing himself because he wants to see Jesus. He's lost himself in the person of Jesus. He forgets who he is. Just like David, who says, you know, I'll become even more undignified than this. As he worships the Lord and takes off his clothes, he doesn't care what anybody thinks of him because he's just consumed with Jesus All of a sudden, Zacchaeus is utterly distracted from his own stuff because he sees Jesus. When we focus on Jesus, we can forget ourselves and respond like Zacchaeus. 
Once in a while, we hear of people who completely forget about their own dreams and passions and their desire for adventure, and they just fall in love with Jesus, and they become consumed with his will. There's a couple of girls uh, who were in our church as students. They were training as pediatricians. Pediatricians in England can earn a lot of money. And, uh, you know, any parent whose child is trained to be a pediatrician or a doctor or a surgeon, you know, is very proud. Their investment in their children is, is, being, is going to pay off, and they can forevermore talk about their kids. The problem is Mary and Kat fell in love with Jesus. And uh, I think it was Mary, uh, either Kat or Mary, but I think it was Mary who, who literally got converted uh, at the vineyard at Trent in Nottingham. And um, to her parents and to their, both their parents' horror, and to this day their parents are kind of unhappy with the choice that they've made, um, Kat and Mary went on a ministry trip to India. And they saw the need and they saw how their skills could help uh, the children in India. And they ended up working out there, going out there, and they started a, a ministry called Love the One. One by one, they would love these children into the kingdom, and they would minister to these children. And, and they have been out there now for, I think it's probably seven or eight years. And it, I mean, when they come home, we bring them home twice a year, and they come home with the most incredible stories. And when they speak, there is such a, a presence of God in the room because of their radical obedience. For a couple of years, they worked in Orissa. Orissa is one of the most dangerous places. I mean, we were really concerned, but they had, there was no way we could challenge the way in which God had spoken to them. I mean, it was radical, the prophetic ways in which God spoke to them about moving into Orissa. Orissa is a war-torn part of India, and nobody goes to, nobody, no mission organizations, nobody's there, there are no hospitals, there are just a huge amount of people dying of all kinds of diseases because nobody wants to be in Orissa. And they felt called to Orissa, and they went in there and they set up a clinic. And while they were there, the soldiers would appear with huge, great guns, and they would insist that they would have to stand in the surgery while Cat and Mary did clinic with some of the young teenage girls, and the girls would have to, and, and these soldiers would stand there. And Cat and Mary would stand up and say, get out. You are not allowed in here. You must leave this room. And they just had this incredible authority. And these soldiers would leave. And, I mean, they could have been raped. I mean, literally, Cat and Mary could have been raped. They could have been murdered. And we wouldn't have known for weeks. And nobody would have known because these things happen in those parts of the world. And so it's amazing what happens when we get lost in the person of Jesus. Anything can happen to us. Maybe being lost in Jesus means stepping out of your comfort zone. It may not be as dramatic as going to India. Some of us uh, do a lot of personality tests. We do it on our staff because we want to get along. We want to understand each other. But, you know, you can do Myers-Briggs and you can do Enneagram. And, I mean, there's so many different ways, discs and all sorts of tests to understand our personality profiles. But one Jesuit priest said to us, you are not your personality profile. You can do all these tests, and the goal is to understand yourself, but to be able to step outside and objectively look at it and say, what part of my personality needs to become like Jesus? How can I change? How can I step outside of my comfort zone? My John is a wonderful example. He is deeply introverted. When I first started dating John, uh, we would go out with my friends who were wild, crazy, extrovert, hilarious, and we would have these evenings of raucous laughter in the pub, and John would just sit there quietly listening. He was enjoying himself, but he was just looking just 
a bit somber, but he was taking it all in. But my friends thought he hated them. And he said, they, they, they would say, does he not like us? Is there something wrong with him? Because he had nothing to say. But he, he, there was no guile in him. I mean, he wasn't criticizing or anything, but he just created this persona of somebody who wasn't interested in people because he was so deeply introverted. And when we had a jewelry business, which I managed, and he made the jewelry, the customers w- would walk in, and I would say, hi, come in, and, uh, and they would see some of the work, and then I would sort of try and it persuade them that actually John, to design them a piece, would be a better deal. That would make us more money. And uh, so I would kind of gently persuade them, and once they were ready to have a piece designed, then John would lift his head up from his bench, from where he was working intently, and then he would engage with the customer and do a few drawings. That was John. And now he has to preach. He has to just love people. He, is, he slowly walks through the crowd in our church and he just talks to people. He has energy beyond energy that I have. Uh, after an evening service, I'm like, let's go home. Let's go home. And John's like, no, let's stay. Let's talk to people. Let's hang out. He has just stepped outside of his comfort zone because he is lost in Jesus. We all have opportunities to grow. One speaker described life at his best. He said this, life at his best is nothing to lose, nothing to prove, nothing to hide. You know, uh, just the shame lifting off. We live before an audience of one. We are free. We are radically free, and we can choose to live in that freedom. And that's how Jesus lived, and it's so attractive, and it's so abandoned, and it's so scary. (laughs) Anyway, we'll get on to some more stories about how scary and adventurous it is tomorrow. But let's stick with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, ridiculous. And then, you know, God has seen him, maybe all the people have seen him, and Jesus stops and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come to your home. And this is just so dramatic. I mean, do you know, I mean, it's one thing to go to the home of someone deserving, but to go to the home of somebody who is against everybody, I mean, it's just just so extreme. There's a guy who I know called Stephen Ruttle, who is um, a QC, he's a judge, and his speciality is mediation. And he actually mediates between national leaders who are potentially going to war. And he says the hardest thing is to get these two parties in a room together to just face each other and to begin a conversation. He says that's the hardest bit. Once you get them together, things can begin to move and change. And Jesus, more than just facing Zacchaeus, he actually reaches in and he extends himself into Zacchaeus' life. And he does something that is so utterly offensive to the people. And he empowers Zacchaeus. You see, the very thing that Zacchaeus can do is entertain and host because he's so wealthy. And here's Jesus focusing on the very thing that Zacchaeus can do. I mean, how aggravating, how aggravating to the people. He's taken from them. He has all this wealth. He has Cows in the field, well, not cows, lambs in the field, and every kind of, you know, um, way that he can show hospitality in a most extravagant way. And Jesus just feeds into that. He just sort of plays into it and says, I'm coming to your home. You know, what you can do best, I'm going to come and partake of. And how utterly aggravating that must have been for the people. They're just incensed. Now, in, in the Middle East, uh, the Middle Eastern people love to show hospitality. Even the poorest of people, if you uh, can go to their home for dinner and they will just sacrifice everything to feed you because it gives them dignity uh, to, where you become the, the subservient one. You become the one who needs their food. It's very, very honoring. So this is incredibly honoring what Jesus is doing to Zacchaeus. 
And the people are shocked, and it's just so unpredictable. He crosses all the boundaries. He mixes with these unclean lepers and prostitutes. I remember David Roos, who's one of the kind of um, songwriting worship leaders in the Vineyard Movement. One of the churches that he planted, he talked about in their first small group, these three cross-dressers started coming to the group. And they would come to the group dressed as guys, um, but they were, they were known for being cross-dressers. And then after several weeks, one of them gives his life to Jesus. And the two others show up the following week dressed in their, you know, wigs and nails and lipstick and high heels. And they are just, because they are just so incensed by the fact that one of them has actually surrendered to Jesus, they need to protest. And David said how the rest of the group didn't bat an eyelid. They just continued with worship. They studied the scriptures and they just loved these guys. And it was just so wonderful. And I thought, how shocking. You know, how would some of our churches cope with some of these kind of people coming in uh, to be amongst us? He offends our thinking. Jesus offends our thinking. He's more than fair. Who is offensive in your life? Who has wounded you? I immediately can think of somebody who has just openly criticizing us as a church. And she's from within. And I was thinking about it in worship. And I was going through the motions of thinking about how are we going to discipline her? What are we going to do? Da, da, da. And I just feel the Lord saying, you know, she's offended you. How are you going to deal with this? And I'm just praying for the Lord to give me a creative, wonderful way to reach in and both explain to her that what she's done isn't right, but absolutely show compassion and, and understand where she's coming from, where the pain is. And it's that extraordinary tension because we have to follow the model of Jesus. I love this story um, that I found on the internet. It's about a girl called Amy Biel. She died a violent death in 1993. She was 26 years old a Fulbright scholar who had gone to South Africa to help register black voters for their first free election. But even though she was seeking to help the people of South Africa, as she was driving one day, she was dragged out of her car, she was stabbed and she was beaten to death by a mob who were committed to violence in order to overthrow the apartheid government. The very people that she had come to help dragged her out of her car and murdered her. Soon afterwards, Amy's parents, Linda and Peter Biel, quit their jobs and moved from Orange County in California to set up home in South Africa. Not because they went to seek revenge, but they started a foundation in Amy's name. And today, two of her killers work for that foundation. And they call Mrs. Biel Malgulu, which means grandmother, because of the way she treats them. She said this, forgiving is looking at ourselves and saying, I don't want to go through life feeling hateful and revengeful. That's not going to do me any good. We took Amy's lead. We did what we felt she would want. It's just, you know, what they did in action is a true picture of reconciliation. And Zacchaeus in this story is undone by the kindness of Jesus. Look, Lord, he says, here and I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. There's no hint of reservation on Zacchaeus' part. He is actually giving away a lot of money, half of his possessions. So even though he's accumulated a lot, half of it he's giving away to the poor. 
And then anybody, which is practically everybody that he's cheated, he's going to give them four times the amount. So really, he isn't going to end up with anything. This is radical, radical repentance. It's real. It's not just a change of heart. It's not just sorry for what I've done. It's actually putting right what has been done wrong. You see, God's love is free. God's love is utterly free. We cannot stop God loving us. God will reach out to us again and again, demonstrating his love. But salvation, on the other hand, requires that we repent, requires that we turn around, that we start changing the way, the direction in which we've been walking, that we turn around and we start to make progress. We may not be able to overnight, you know, we're not going to be free of sin, but we need to face the direction of Jesus and start walking towards a new way of living. For many, many years, I would say, sorry, God, sorry, God, when I wasn't living um, the Christian life. I knew God, but I was not following Jesus. And John and I were involved in a, you know, sexually uh, before we got married. And we knew better than that. We knew that wasn't something that was biblical. And I would say sorry, and he would say sorry. But we never changed until we finally came into uh, a kind of conversion experience when we went to that kind of first meeting uh, with John Wimber at my dad's church. And we then decided we've got to repent. We've got to stop. We've got to get engaged. We've got to get married. We've got to start doing something about this. And we did, and we abstained. And I really believe the Lord has blessed our marriage because we withheld. We stopped. It was hard because once you've started, it's really hard. But it's a great testimony because we have so many young people in our church who are falling into sexual sin. And, um, you know, we have 20,000 students hit the streets of Nottingham every September. They're out on the pool. They're, they're, you know, trying to have an adventure. And a number of them come in to church, and some of them have come from Christian homes. And they've just gone nuts in their first term. Alcohol, promiscuity, everything. Drugs, things like that. And, I mean, just one of my favorite things is to be able to pray with them and just say, you can abstain. You can commit to celibacy. You can be clean. You can be set free. We can pray through this stuff. You can walk a fresh walk with Jesus. It can be done. So Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Wherever Jesus is, there is the opportunity for salvation. Zacchaeus has been rescued. And this is such a perfect cameo illustration of God's incredible love. You know, each of us, like Zacchaeus, each of us here is known by God. He doesn't pass any of us by. There is nothing about our lives that Jesus is walking past and not noticing. Each of us is significant. He's inviting us into a passionate relationship with the Father. He comes to us first, and we can respond to him with our free will. Zacchaeus was, by birth, a child of Abraham. He was Jewish. But it was after he encountered Jesus that he truly embraced what it means to be a child of Abraham. Jesus reinstates him as a child of Abraham. It's not just because he's become alienated, but his action has demonstrated that he now wants to be someone who's a giver, not a taker. He wants to start living that life of being blessed to be a blessing. And so suddenly he has a true identity, more so than some of the Jewish community in Jericho around him. We are called to be a blessing everywhere. We have an invitation to live a radical life. I'm going to end with a story, and then we're going to go into ministry. Um, on the plane over here, 
I, it was, I was flying with Delta, and uh, it was very comfortable because it was an empty plane. So I had a seat next to me that was empty. There was lots of empty seats. And I was really relieved because I thought, I'm going to be able to go over all my talks. I'm going to be able to pray. This is going to be so relaxing. And you know something? As soon as I think thoughts like that, I have this little niggling, nagging thought. Oh, Lord, whatever you want to do, I'm open. And I catch a glimpse through the gap in the chairs, and there's a girl sitting on, so I'm in this seat with a set of two chairs, and so I'm in this one and an empty seat, and she's in front, she's that one and an empty seat, and I catch a glimpse of her, and immediately the name Andrea, Andrea comes to my mind, Andrea, because there's an Andrea in our church, and she just kind of reminded me of her, and Andrea in our church is, is a very broken woman, and, um, and I thought, oh goodness, she reminds me of Andrea, what's that about? I didn't do anything at that point, and then about an hour later, she peeks through, looking at me, and she says, isn't it great that it's such an empty plane? It's so comfortable. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to talk. And so I said, shall I come round and sit next to you and shall we chat? And she went, yes. So I went round and I asked her about her life, what she was doing traveling to America. We started this conversation. And as we were talking, she began to do this with her neck, you know, and then she said, I just need to stand up. I get terrible backache and I have um, scoliosis and, you know, these journeys are really painful. And um, at, by this stage, I told her a little bit about the fact that I was a pastor of a church. I was on my way to speak at a women's conference. I told her a little bit about my story. And I said, um, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray um, for healing for you. And, um, and I said, by the way, what's your name? And she, and she said, Andrea. Slightly different accent. But I'm like, oh, my gosh. I said, God told me your name was Andrea. I just had it Andrea instead of Andrea. And uh, I said, gosh, you know, I really, really do have to pray for you. So um, <laughs> we started to pray. The, the, wait, the um, hostess came by. Is she okay? As we started to pray, the Spirit of God came on her. And the hostess was like, is she okay? I go, yeah, she's fine. But, I mean, they must have thought it was really peculiar because, you know, I'm, I, I'm just a passenger sitting in the back row, and then I'm kind of ministering to this woman. And she's experiencing the presence of God. And she said she felt like this incredible peace came on her. She felt like not just where I was putting my hands on her, she felt heat, but she felt other hands were on her body. And um, she just says, I just feel this ease of tension. And um, she was just, and I just said, you know, God loves you so much. And, um, and then I felt like I started to preach a little. I, did, I just thought, am I saying too much? So I said, I'm just going to leave you to rest. So I went to sit behind. I'm going, oh, God, let the healing last. Let it last and all of this. And, um, oh, Lord, you know, what else am I supposed to say? You know, do I lead her to you? Do, I, do we say the prayer together? Is this really like, is she going to get saved? What's going to happen? And about two hours later, she gets up and she walks past, and, and then she comes back from the toilet, and she just sits, leans next to me. She goes, thank you so much. I feel so well. I can't tell you how well I feel. That's amazing. So I said, do you want to chat some more? So we went around, and... Um, I just began to tell her about Jesus and how he's pursuing her. I told her, and she began to open up about guilt in her life and shame and anxiety. And I told her about, this is why Jesus died, and he wants you to meet him and know him. And it was just the most amazing time of her meeting the Lord. And we exchanged email addresses, and I just said, you've got to read these books, Mere Christianity, The Reason for God. You need to find a church that I'm going to be praying for you. Email me. It was just amazing. God is on the move. God is everywhere. Everywhere you go, there are people who are searching. And it's just about being open. Being open 
It doesn't matter where you're headed. It doesn't matter sometimes how busy you are. But if you will just allow God to speak to you, you will be amazed how he will lead you into the lives of people who really are on a desperate quest for something and they don't know how much God loves them. Why don't we stand?